talk about Calvinism, but I think what is exciting to me is we have our first ever podcast crossover this morning. It's like the old superhero crossovers of old, the brave and the bold. We've got Batman and Superman that are here. That's going over Matt Castro's head, but Jackson, (laughs) I know that you're in. Uh, So with me, I've got uh, Jackson Van Dyke, a student minister from uh, First Southern here in town, and Matt Castro, our church planner. Doctor. Doctor Matt Castro. Wow. (laughs) Pulling out the big guns already. Since I'm in Northwoods, I thought I'd, you know, push my weight around. Hey man, man, if if I had a doctorate, I would be pushing the doctor too, man. You got to flaunt that stuff. Right. And so we've got Dr. Castro from Redeemer Church up on the west side, our church plant. We love these guys and we're glad that we're here and we're going to talk Calvinism today. And really my goal today is to uh, talk about Calvinism so that people can understand what we're talking about because people know that this is a controversy in the SBC uh, and a controversy in a lot of churches uh, for that matter, but they don't know what it is. And so I, I just want to talk about what is Calvinism, some of the basic controversies about it, uh, and bring it down to people's level so that people can understand. So uh, before I forget this, what is the name of y'all's podcast? Here's an easy question. It's called Empires of the Future, which I found out, which I didn't know if you knew this. You probably did. Empires of the Future was in a quote that Churchill uh, yeah. used, and I had never heard that, and you were the one that came up with the name. So it has a Churchill connection. Which goes along with what we talk a lot about. This is great, because this is, the way I remember it, you came up with a name, but this is perfect, because yeah. now we can just, you know, do that Christian thing and say, like, no, it was you, no, no it was modesty, you. Modesty, um, modesty. And so, yeah, Winston Churchill, the, the empires of the future of will the future. be empires of the mind, he said. Yes, I, yes. So, uh, uh, we talk a lot about politics and culture, and we add a little bit of how that affects the church today. So, that's really the big bit for our podcast. Great. We'll go out and listen to it. You can find it where? You can find it everywhere, Apple uh, Podcast, uh, Podbean as well. We also post it on Facebook and YouTube. YouTube, And we actually just started filming our shows. Actually, we're filming this one. So um, so that's kind of a new thing we're trying to add um, to our shows so you can see us as we talk. Um, so, yeah. So we uh, you can find it also on our website at redeemer.emsonchurch.com. We've been asked to film this podcast, too, and I've been resistant because we're probably better seen and not heard uh-huh. at, at Northwoods. Well, you know, yeah, you, you end up with this whole kind of like, oh, well, now I have to think about what I look like. You know, right. In addition to what I sound like. So. Yeah, I mean, people don't know, but I'm just not wearing pants right now. <laughs> yeah, we're in the... You're better radio. We are uncomfortable. <laughs> right. You're more of a radio guy than a TV guy. Yeah, this... It's going to be the most uncomfortable Calvinism conversation ever. <laughs> we, we should call this episode Calvinism Without Pants. Without Pants. <laughs> All right. So uh, so what is Calvinism? If you had to break it down for somebody that was a lay person and just wanted to know. You've been in industry longer than I have. Why don't you go for it? So, um, assuming, uh, basically, here's what you need. For a theological system, you need to have read the whole Bible and made an attempt to put it all together, which is challenging. Mm-hmm. Uh, systematic theology is very difficult. Um, but then it, it seems that you're going to end up with uh, certain kind of answers to some of the biggest questions that you end up with. And so uh, Calvinism is a system that really emphasizes uh, the depravity of man, that man uh, is really bad, <laughs> cannot save himself, cannot do anything about it. Uh, and the sovereignty of God, so therefore then God is doing most, if not all, of the acting, depending on which Calvinist you asked. 
Yeah, I was reading a little bit on Calvin uh, last night, kind of preparing for this conversation. And um, historians and theologians who talk about and like talking about the Reformers, really that, you know, Luther had his bent, but Calvin's real bent was the majesty of God, you know. And, and he, he spent a lot of time thinking and, and preaching on the majesty of God and that God does whatever he pleases to do, right? Um, and that really was John Calvin's bent, and then that kind of flowed out of his understanding of Scripture, his understanding of salvation. Um, it all kind of centers around God, um, where he had some issues with the Catholics because he saw Catholics really specifying tradition, right? Not God-centered, but tradition-centered or man-centered. Um, but Calvin really pushed for this supremacy and majesty of God. And that should affect the way that we think, the way that we do ministry, the way we lead the church. And I think that was his major bit and i think that that, if you're going to think about calvinism and john calvin is the majesty of god yeah and so to put some historical uh bumps or some guardrails around uh the conversation you know this is as you said something that was pushed back against the catholic church Mm -hmm. john calvin was a reformer in the 1500s he was french and he uh he had a very interesting view of scripture, which was definitely a pushback against the Catholic Church and how it applies to us today. I mean, many Christians ask him, how much free will do we have? Mm-hmm. And certainly Calvinism is an understanding based on a reading of scripture that God is sovereign. He has control. And the free will question is his answer would be very little, if not none. Uh, I, I'm pretty sure he would say none that. Everything is under the sovereignty and the control of God. Right. So, so what is, how did, the good thing about this is I can edit my, oh, yeah. myself. So, yeah. uh, how so did Calvin... Hey, if you cuss, you can just cut that right off. <laughs> that, that's right. How do you know we haven't done that before? Um, so, how did Calvinism start? Ooh. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, it's so interesting about this conversation um, is that people have their ideas of what Calvinism is. Most people don't even know what it is. And little do people know the historical aspects of that Calvinism, the, the system itself, didn't come until, what, 60, 70 years after Calvin had passed away? Yeah. Uh, in, in, in the Netherlands, not even in France, not even in Switzerland. We're yeah. talking about a totally different country where you have a uh, Protestants who disagreed on some theological issues. And um, Jacob Arminius, who had his views, and the people who followed him, there is a, a Synod of Dort, which kind of set down the five kind of principles of reformed doctrine that kind of got tagged with Calvinism. And and so it's just so interesting that um, these other people in a totally different country kind of piggybacked off of uh, Calvin's institutes and developed a system 70 years after he'd already passed away. And that's an interesting thing that I hear about people that are opposed to Calvinism, that people will say, well, Calvin didn't really support or invent Calvinism. And On its bare bones, I think that argument is true, that Mm -hmm. Calvin didn't institute five points of Calvinism, which most people adhere to today. But I think it was people trying to distill in a simple manner, an understandable manner, this is the beliefs of Calvin. And I don't Mm -hmm. think that Calvin would have, this is like reading the mind of the dead, but I don't think that he would have been opposed to the Synod of Dort or what they came up with. Nor would have Luther. Luther wouldn't have been opposed to what they came out of Dort either. Like as some of the prominent reformers probably would have had no issue with the five points that are mentioned. Yeah. But yet Calvin is the one that gets kind of tagged with kind of the leader or the one who really 
articulated and developed this system. Um, but I just would, I, it'd be interesting to see, you know, if you did a bunch of reading in Luther and other reformers, would they have said the same thing? And I'm pretty sure they probably would have. Yeah. So why is Calvinism so popular today, especially with young people? I mean, it's, it's almost a bumper sticker thing, right? That you're young, restless, and reformed, especially uh, a lot of seminarians right now are definitely reformed, and our seminaries in Southern Baptist life are moving towards reformed theology and, and Calvinistic theology. So why is it so popular? So I thought about this a fair amount um, and have had to think about this a fair amount just because it is something that you're going to experience if you're new to the church and, and you are listening to this, po- this podcast going, well, what, are, what is this? What are they talking about? Well, listen, you'll run into uh, this, not just because there are people who adhere to this. I mean, here's the other thing about Calvinism starting is that if you read Romans 8 and 9, you're going to start asking some really hard questions because there's some really hard answers in there. And that's what happened to a guy like uh, Augustine who read the whole Bible, was trying to put everything together, you know, in the three and four hundreds. And so then literally one of the things that was going on is for about a thousand years, because the Roman Empire was lost, scholarship was underground in a lot of ways. And so it took up until the Reformation for people to start reading the Bible in the original languages and going, oh, we can get some answers to the, and we, you know, since we're not trying to stay alive, we're not worrying about starving. We can read, mm-hmm. uh, and so that's what came around in the 1500s. And so, um, the shortcomings of revivalism is the number one thing that I would say has led to a resurgence of Calvinism. Even as a uh, as a person who didn't grow up in the church, I can remember being around the church for about two or three years, and asking hard questions when I'm like 17 or 18 years old, and and, and saying things like, "Guys, but so you're telling me that people can just come in here, raise their hands, say that yeah." I'm a Christian, you'll tell them they're saved and then they'll disappear, we'll never see them again, and they're just fine? Well, yeah, I guess they are. Well, mm-hmm. I was not satisfied with that. As a 17-year-old, after, you know, a, a year's worth of youth group experience, going like, that can't be it. But the shortcomings of revivalism, things like the emotionalism, easy believism, just, hey, all you got to do is come forward, raise your hand, everybody, will, we'll ask the church, do you receive this person? Sure we do. And then, Whatever happens after that, we're not worried about anything. That's not the Bible. I mean, if you read the New Testament once, you will go, what you're saying is not how this works. Right. Uh, and, and so the shortcomings of uh, revivalism is my biggest answer. Um, there's a lot of difficult questions in Scripture, and you cannot just answer them by going, well, don't worry about it. I mean, if there's anything you can pick up from Jesus, he is saying, listen, you need to get it figured out. You need to ask some hard questions about who God is and what he expects of you now yeah. on this earth. Don't don't blow these things off and assume it's all going to work out. That's the first thing I'll say. I came across a quote uh, by C.S. Lewis, which is always a great quote, right? He said, talking about Calvinism, he said, unless we can imagine the freshness, the audacity, and soon the fashionableness, fashionableness of Calvinism, we shall get our whole picture wrong. Basically, he's saying, in the 1500s, Calvinism and, right. and his views were fashionable. I mean, right. this is like, you know, did you did you read this? Did you hear there's this book out? Like that was what was going on mm-hmm. when he's writing, and when and a lot of the reformers, when they're, I mean, they were. It was subversive. Man. Yeah, and so I think there's almost been like I think the 20th century, and again, I wasn't y'all are youth pastors. Y'all probably know more about the history of kind of the growing uh, trend of youth ministry, but. Kind of the the me-centered, entertainment-driven, 
uh, Christian uh, ministries, I think ended up running its course. And I think younger, especially college age, were studying, reading, getting it, uh, getting into new ideas. And they're reading this thing and like, wow, I never heard this in church. My pastor never preached well, on this. Meanwhile, what is the one doctrine? I mean, you you all know, having been around Baptist churches, there's a few doctrines that if you come to it, people will just go, whoa, whoa, stop right yeah. there. We don't question <laughs> <Yeah>. you. <laughs> and yeah. one of those is, Calvinism. can people lose their salvation? Yeah. Right, yeah. yeah. Which directly comes to, to say to somebody, no, you can't possibly lose your salvation. That is a corruption. This once saved, always saved is a revivalism corruption right. of, of Calvinism, Calvinism, of the P in the tulip, which we'll get to in a minute, the perseverance of the saints, which right. under Calvinism is, if you're a saint, you should persevere actively. But right. we have sold it to people like, oh, you know, you bought a ticket from God and he can't do anything about it now. Yeah. You're in, whether right. he likes it or not. Right. And <laughs> I certainly can resonate that that, that drives Calvinist crazy because I think that should drive every person who calls himself a Christian crazy. Yeah, I, I grew up in lives. I grew up in a moderate Southern Baptist church growing up, and Me too. Yeah. and so growing up, the I didn't even know what Calvinism was, but yeah, the saying right. that I heard around church was "We're one point Calvinists," meaning right. they believed in perseverance of the saints, once saved, always, always saved, saved. That corruption of, of yeah. that doctrine, right? Uh, and, and I think both of y'all are, are right that looking at revivalism and, and how it's impacted the church and what revivalism is is uh, back in the 1900s this movement of uh, sawdust aisles and tent revivals and uh, mass gatherings where uh, there's revivals held and people are coming to Jesus it, it seems to be a, a watering down of Christianity and the Christian faith that you can just walk an aisle raise your hand pray a prayer and you can become a Christian and then go live like the devil the yeah. rest of your days. Yeah. And most young people, uh, especially millennials and Gen Z, they're looking for something deeper yeah. in terms of faith. Yeah. And looking at Christianity and saying there's got to be something more than this. Especially looking at a lot of prominent teachers recently, not even recently, over the past 20 years that have yeah. fallen from the faith. Yeah. And they look at their like. There's got to be something more to Christianity than this. Yeah, There's right. got to be a deeper faith. Right. And so it's a reaction to that. There's yeah. got to be something more than spiky hair, hair gel, rock music. There's got to be something more to this. And I think that me-centered Christianity, which, just to be honest, over the last 20 to 30 years, that has been the major push. I mean, the, the idea that God is ma does what he pleases, right? He is in control of what's going on. I think that has resonated with some younger people. Yeah, and it, it seems to be a better answer than just free will itself. That we just kind of do whatever we, God we do whatever we please, right? Right. And God lets us do whatever we want. Yeah. Right. So I do think there's another uh, a thing that I have seen in young people over the years. Uh, so American individualism can express itself in in a few different ways. Uh, and basically, the, the thing you can see in all of us is this desire to have my own story that is not somebody else's story. And I've seen plenty of young people who will turn to Calvinism because, well, I don't want to be a vanilla Christian like my parents. And this is an opportunity to be kind of like a Marine Corps sort of Christian, yeah. at least the next level. you know. And it's sort of, a, this will be my story. And it's very similar to what you brought up about mm -hmm. Calvinism is, again, avant-garde. It is, again, very fashionable because basically, while... Uh, while the first wave of Calvinism lasted a long time, had all kinds of uh, theological difficulties, all kinds of splits within it, well, that's all past, and it pretty much died out through the 
kind of the late Second Great Awakening and into especially revivalism. Revivalism has been an, a very Arminian sort of movement right. overall. Very The pendulum swings very emotional. And Calvinism is very rigorous, very rational, very much. You, you don't find too many Calvinists who are super fluffy, emotional people. You just don't. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> and, and honestly, if this doesn't work, you can cut it out. But I think most of the 20th century has been, mostly within the Christian church, has been about Billy Graham. Yep. It's been about crusades. Um, that has been the biggest bit, right? Um, if you if you want to define evangelicalism, you kind of have to add Billy Graham to that de- yeah. definition, right? Billy Graham wasn't preaching on Calvinism. He wasn't preaching on any of this aspect. Um and, and I think you, and mostly, you know, what I've noticed is a lot of men, young men, uh, who read maybe a, a John Piper book, or an R.C. Sproul book, or something like this, or John MacArthur, they read this, and their eyes are just open, right? Their mind has been open. They've been a part of these churches, and no one's ever mentioned any of this. It's almost like this hidden gem yeah. that now has been revealed to them, and it did that usually leads to this almost like this second conversion for them right it's like i was a christian but now i'm a calvinist like this like huge new new world has opened up and now they're converting people to calvinism not yeah. necessarily just the gospel yeah, that's where it goes where off the rails right. that's, that's where, where we get to yeah, the, the, rails. Um, <laughs> the and, problematic part. yeah right, exactly. you unlocked you uncaged the beast and the beast gets out and it runs rampant mm-hmm. in churches and usually that's where it gets a bad connotation right you get a lot of these guys who uh, it doesn't seem like they have a lot in their life that's organized, but yet they love Calvinism and John Calvin, and they just preach into the masses about the about John Calvin and stuff. So um, it is interesting kind of where we are, but I think when people start to realize that it's about the majesty of God, it's about God's Word, um, and studying His Word and understanding His Word, uh, and that doesn't necessarily remove the, the importance of evangelism and sharing the gospel with people, um, which is usually where people tend to have their issues and stuff with and, Calvinists. And just to, to piggyback on what you said, I don't think Calvinists would dog on Billy Graham. I think that they wouldn't say that Billy Graham is a heretic at no, all. I mean, no, they, they, right. he's a solid preacher, preaching right. scripture. Right. But I think what they take offense to is the system of saying that we're going to have these mass gatherings yep. and you're going to pray a prayer, raise your hand, and you're going to be a Christian and you're going to walk off into the wild and live the Christian life. Right. Without any discipleship or training, yeah, right. and and a guy like a Charles Finney deserves a lot more. Uh, exactly, scrutiny. <laughs> Finney this, is like the bad guy. And I, this yeah. is the guy who most people would look at him and go, "So he's just walking around saying, look, you're here, you did it, you know, go yeah. off and do, you know, you're right with God now.' I mean, just some things that are are not square with Scripture, and unfortunately." Billy Graham comes along at the end of revivalism and does a fantastic job and then lasts, pretty much outlasts revivalism yeah. in a lot of ways. Right. Whereas a lot of revivalist thought was very, I mean, to me it's adaptation of sales theory from the late 1800s to Christianity. Yeah. Get people to sign on, tell them they did it, they're all good, move on to the next city and get more people. I mean, right. it, a lot of revivalism was that. And Billy Graham is not an exemplar of bad revivalism. He is an exemplar of good revivalism. Yeah, and when you apply revivalism to missiology, then it becomes especially concerning, especially in an international context. Like, uh, we went to Ecuador one time on a mission trip, with, and it was a joint mission trip. It wasn't just our church, and this is before I came to Northwoods, but it was our church plus some other people from another church, and they had a very revivalist bent to what they did. 
And we left that mission trip very concerned because their yep. whole attitude was the goal is to get somebody to sign on board. Yep. Right. Let's yep. get them to pray a prayer, yep. give them a Bible. We've done our job. Yep. And we were left very concerned about that. Right. That we're just almost like dropping babies off in the bassinet and leaving them. Right. That they have no chance of survival. Yep. Right. And there's a difference between revivals and revivalism. Yeah. George Whitfield was a Calvinist who sparked the first great awakening, which was revivals, right? Yeah. Right. So I think hopefully people listening don't, don't don't confuse the terms. I mean, as a pastor, sure, we preach revivals. We want people to be revived by the Spirit of God. We want the right. Word of God to revive people. But revivalism is a system of setting up an environment and a, and a thought process where you're manipulating people to walk an aisle yep. or do something like that. And that that's especially where people are understanding the majesty of God. You're not allowing God. You're, you're basically manipulating people to have some like salvation moment. And you're saying it's about people making this major decision or you as people, as leaders, setting up an environment that makes people put the, you know turn their hearts to God. And it's like, where's God in the picture here? You know, where's God turning people's hearts over through his word and revive through his spirit? So... I think that's where really we get into the ideas of God-centered salvation and not man-centered salvation. And I think the most concerning part of revivalism that we haven't touched on is the part about, you touched on it briefly, sales theory and yep. emotional manipulation. Yep. That's and, and if you've ever been to a youth camp yep. back in the 70s, 80s, or 90s, yep. you experienced that. Mm -hmm. That there's going to be this moment where there's a bunch of crying, snotty mm -hmm. teenagers down front, and everybody wants to be down front because that's where the emotion is. Mm -hmm. And there's a bunch of kids that aren't making honest decisions before God. Right. They're being pulled by their heartstrings and their emotions, right. and, and it's dangerous. Yeah. Right. So let's turn the corner, and we've, we've skirted around what are the five points of Calvinism, the five basic tenets of Calvinism, which is also known as the TULIP, which mm -hmm. is the acronym. So what are they? T, I'll start with T here. Sure. T is total depravity. Um, and um, we have this understanding that we are, because of the fall, because of the, the sin of Adam and Eve in the garden, that our natures are sinful, right? And and by when we're born into the world with original sin, we have this sinful nature. And that, because of that sinful nature, we do not have the ability on our own to pursue and worship God. Um, so in a, in a nutshell, that's what total... Yeah. Depravity, or another good word is totally polluted because yeah. of our sinful nature. Yeah. Totally See, corrupted. And you always need to uh, distinguish. Uh, this doesn't mean we are as evil as we could be. Sure. Total depravity is about inability. Mm -hmm. Inability yeah. right. to turn back to God and to save yourself, but not not just to save yourself, to make yourself any better. Uh, right. And, and what that's saying, the total depravity, is that you're just not going to have this moment where you're sitting under an apple tree and you just decide, I am not right with God and I need to get my life right with God. Right, and I'm going to do it of my own ability. Right. It's just not going to happen. Right. You uh, is? Unconditional divine election. God chooses. God chooses. Mm -hmm. So God chooses who's saved, and then there's an argument yeah, there amongst Calvinists. <laughs> Does he choose who's not saved as well? Right. And, and Calvinists do not agree on that point. Right. Um L is limited atonement, which mm -hmm. means 
Well, and, and this is interesting because, uh, you know, even just because you have a Calvinist doesn't mean that there are five-point Calvinists, right? Sure. There's four uh, points. And... Yeah, and I think it, I think even at Southern Seminary, which is a predominantly Calvinist seminary, you have different, you have four-pointers and you have five-pointers, right? And so... Uh, and and so then you usually, have that, right? Usually, yeah, usually the limited atonement is really where there's a vision, you know, because there's passages in the Bible where, uh, you know, God, Christ saved the world, right? Yeah, God so loved the world. So there's an, a, almost a universal, very inclusive terminology like world. But yet this is saying it's it's limited. Um, and so limited, I think, is a in my mind, it's kind of a bad word. Limited sounds very negative, as if God couldn't save more. He didn't have the ability to save more, so therefore God is limited. And that's just not the truth. He's not limited by his atonement. It's sufficient for all, but God elects certain people so it's only affected to some and so therefore i like that better than affected to some than limited because limited it sounds like a very uh, negative word you know yeah and this is the point as you said that everybody disagrees on in, in calvinist circles because the argument is did jesus die for just people he knew that were going to be saved the right. elect or did he die for everybody and you know there's passages in scripture that Speak both directions. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so there's debate based on that. And just to, to say this, Calvin would define this, these these passages, like John 3.16, with world being all different nations, not necessarily all people, but all different nations will hear the gospel and respond to the gospel. And therefore, in Revelation, when all nations' tongues are there worshiping God together, we see a world. And so that's how Calvin defines that term so yeah cool uh i is for irresistible grace so what is that all about so this one is i think the most easily confused uh total depravity is pretty easily confused but sure. even later people get confused about this so my understanding of irresistible grace everybody agrees that we resist the work of god i mean that's what sin is yeah. sin is resistance to the work of god irresistible grace is about this question ultimately if God is calling someone, can they refuse that call? Now, ultimately meaning, if God has elected a person, at the end of the day, who wins that tug of war? Does the person get to say, no, I will not be uh, in your kingdom, I will not be a child of yours, or does God say, no, you will, quote, whether you like it or not? But then that's a, that gets into the whole discussion of desires and how those things get Or formed. the other side of the coin is that there would be someone who would want to believe and trust in Christ, but God didn't elect them. Therefore, you know, they're in hell. And though they wanted to, they had a desire, but yet they weren't effectively well, and called. And so therefore, it creates this idea that like there's this moment in time, there's a line across the sand and God's like, come to me, I'm here for you. And they resist that grace. Or um, where I think what you're seeing even in the Bible when someone's redeemed or saved by Christ, what are the, the Spirit's working through the Word of God. They, they hear the Word preached to them, and their heart is changed by the Holy Spirit. They respond. Their eyes are open. Their hearts are open. Their ears are open to the gospel, and they believe it. So therefore, it's irresistible. Right. <laughs> so like, it isn't this moment where this person's like, I don't want to believe this. But it's irresistible. Yeah. And, and like, it creates this weird, like, illustration and mind go. That's like, true. And it's the, just a weird, like, the that's best not comparison what's going on. I have ever uh, heard is uh, think about a 17 year old boy who sees a 17 year old girl and he finds <laughs> her very attractive, right? Yeah. And 
so he approaches to talk to her. Okay, did did she initiate that or did he initiate that? Well, he came because he was drawn to her, but she might have been putting out the vibe, right? So when did it start? Who knows? And really, this is a very good comparison yeah. to this exact issue because you are not in a good place to say, well, that 17-year-old boy, he didn't want to get anywhere near that girl, but why did he, though? It's like, no, he wanted to, okay? Like, she's beautiful. And that's the exact same, it's the same argument, that the Holy Spirit, the work of the Holy Spirit is beautiful. Mm-hmm. Uh, God himself is, is, is beauty. Uh, Jesus is beauty incarnate. Uh, there has never been anything more beautiful. He's a pearl so, of great price. Right. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. so that's the the best way to understand it. And I, I do want to add one more kind of. Uh, this always feels like a fire hose. So for anybody right now who feels like a fire hose, that that's the way this always feels because what this is doing is putting everything that you've learned into one big box and shaking it up. Right. And and so yes, that's just the way it is. But um, in the same way that Calvin applied the thought about. Uh, on the atonement that this is groups that we're talking about. Some people say, well, election is about groups that God used to only call the Jews, but then we see in the New Testament, he says, no, the Gentiles are in now. And so election is about groups, whereas we're Americans, we think individualistically, so we want to start asking questions about, right. they're like bowling pins, right? God's knocking certain ones down and taking those, and the others just get left behind. Well, maybe not necessarily. Uh, you can you can certainly read Romans, read Ephesians, and, and see these passages about election and go, oh, he's talking a lot about Jews and Gentiles and how God turned the Jews over so that then he could bring the whole group back along with this new group, the Gentiles, who will be grafted in. And so uh, Romans is complicated. Yeah, it is. <laughs> it is. And the last one is the one that everybody knows, which is perseverance of the saints. Right which is all about, we've talked about this a little bit, mm-hmm. but it's about the sovereignty of God. That yeah. if, if God chooses to save somebody, he's not going to unchoose to save somebody. Right. It's a sovereign act of God that right. his plans that he makes are going to be enacted from start to finish. Yeah. Right. Which, yeah, I mean, which is, a, all this is about, Archie Sproul talks about this, but he's talking about Reformed theology, about the golden chain of salvation, right? God initiated it, in his election, and he's gonna finish it. Like he's gonna sanctify us. He's gonna. We're gonna. We're gonna be uh, transformed and conformed to the image of Christ. We're gonna be glorified with Christ. And so, perseverance of the saints is speaking to that. Like as we sit here uh, and during this pandemic, struggling with things that we're struggling with, frustrated with the things we're frustrated with, acknowledging though that God is going to persevere us through this, and then He's going to sanctify us through this, and He's going to complete us. Until Christ returns, that is like so encouraging. So really, perseverance of the saint isn't like a card to go sin all the more, right. you know, and just you know, and it, because we have grace, now we can sin, as Paul says. By no means are we are then forced into this idea that we can just go out in the world and just sin and live like heathens. We've been saved by Christ, we've been redeemed by Christ, we've been bought by the blood of Christ, and God's gonna finish us, and that's a really comforting thing. Yeah, and, and getting back to the. I think that's how people can understand what Calvinism is the most basically. It's a question about the sovereignty of God. How sovereign is God? Mm-hmm. And if God is in charge of everything, knows everything, controls everything, then he must be in charge of the process of salvation. Right. People have no ability to save themselves. God must initiate salvation. People can't resist that calling. And whatever God starts, he's going to finish it. Yeah. That's in a nutshell. Yeah. But it all starts with the sovereignty of God. Yeah. Um, so 
here's the word that everybody is makes everybody crazy in in Bible study classes at Sunday school classes <laughs> around the North America. Uh, predestination. So, what does the Bible say about predestination? All right, here's a great opportunity uh, to quote you the most pertinent passage uh, because this is a complicated concept. If you start out muddy, you will only get muddier. So, uh, Romans 8, 29 to 30, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. So you are dealing with here, look, God looks down through the corridors of time. He can see. Yes, you have some very complicated terms in there. Foreknowledge, never experienced it. Some of this has to do with foreknowledge. How exactly? I don't know. But he predestines, and then it says, he then is going to call, meaning just what we're talking about, put out the vibe, people begin to be drawn to him. And then he says, now I justify you, I make you right with me. And then those who he justifies, he glorifies. He, he perfects you. He makes you beautiful right. in, in all the ways that really matter. Right. And so uh, that's that's the key passage. It's not just one place. Some people, oh, it's just a small one. Well, I mean, Ephesians 1.5, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will. Uh, predestination uh, pertinent places also mentioned in 1 Corinthians 2 and then later in Ephesians 1 as well. So this is not just a one-off. Uh, this is this is in there. You have to deal with it. And, and, and one thing that I want to say to anybody who might go, well, where is this? Where's the rubber meet the road? The rubber meets the road on this in a lot of ways. But the thing that I would advise any parent answering questions to a student about this, anybody who's discipling somebody, is please do not give pat answers. Please do not give answers that don't deal face-to-face -face fully with hard questions. If you do, you are telling someone, go find answers somewhere else. Right. And yeah. a lot of this, a lot of the push here is... People who are not satisfied, especially young people who are not satisfied with pat answers when most of the time what it means is I don't want to work hard. I don't want to put in the hard work of discipleship. I don't want to bear with someone when that's what we're called to do in the New Testament. Yeah. That's how discipleship happens, by bearing with one another, by, by being in the nitty gritty. Yeah. Um, and, and so please do that. Look, if you hear a hard question, say, I don't know, if you don't know the answer. And then go find out. Go ask Somebody, that's right. You you got to go after those answers. Um, that is that is a part of what's going on here. Is people there are too many challenges in our global world for people to go. Oh well, you don't need to know the answer to that question. Or we're not meant to know the answer to that question. It's like, look, I intend to search the scriptures and to grow forever. Okay, I look forward to continuing to learn, even when we get to the kingdom of heaven. Uh, please don't tell me. You know, we're not meant to know. When it's a question that's like, well, I think I ought to be able to know about how I can speak to people about Christ. What is the most effective and reasonable way to do that? That's a great, important question. And, and uh, don't be turned off by hard questions. Yeah. And I think, you know, even in the word uh, predestination, you think of the word destiny. Your destiny is preloaded by God. Uh, and so other people, I think this is where, again, we go back to the same central point, the majesty of God. 
if you hate the word predestination or your destiny is preloaded by God, then you want your own me-centered, individualized life where you can create, you can infuse, you can do what you want. And this is going back to the struggle of man and God. We want to worship ourselves. We want to worship the creation, not the creator itself. And really this word, if you look to God and say, you are majesty, your word is beautiful, Lord. your word is powerful, your word is full of wisdom, thank God your, my life is predestined by you, right? I mean, like, that should, that's why the, the New Testament, especially Romans 8 and Ephesians 1, is written to a church. Yeah. For Christians to go, thank God in the midst of this yeah. struggle, in the midst of this uh, terror that we're going through, especially the church in Rome, during the Roman Empire, that God's predestined my life. That whatever happens to us or what happens to me, I know God is in control. That is beautiful. It is. <laughs> it's gorgeous. And I think if you, the where people struggle is like, I don't want God to have the majesty over my life. I don't want him to be Lord of my life. I don't want him to destine my life to a certain way. I want to control that. Well, that's always going to be a conflict for the human and God. And there's a tension mm-hmm. in there that we're getting to. Because yeah. I think any of us, you know, like, yeah. Oh, yeah. you get these questions like, well, is, how many more drinks of coffee did God predestine me to take right <laughs> now? And these are, there is a tension in the scripture yeah. as far as, okay, but what about all these little details? You know, am I even existing? Yes, you are. Yes, certainly. <laughs> yeah. You are. Okay. And your actions matter. Right. And uh, I, I disagree strongly with anyone who gets to that point, says, no, your actions don't even matter. Whether you get out of bed or it makes no difference. Like, oh, it makes a difference. It, it really does. does. It, it does. And that's why we have to define election is different than predestination. Election yep. is true. God elects sinners to salvation. Predestination is your life, the things that happen in your life. God is using for his purpose, which he determined before the foundation of the world. So it, what, even in that particular issue, is like the things that you do. Your actions that you make, the, the decisions that you make, are a part of God's directive, his purpose, to make the whole world what? Underneath Christ. Which means even this discussion we're having right now is significant in the purpose and will of God. That is like, you know, sure. mind-blowing. But it makes, it almost, almost humbles us. Like, why would God use us? Why would God elect us? Why would God... Use us to determine his purpose and determine his his will. And Here's one of the amazing. best. And, let me just tag in here before I lose a thought. I think it's interesting that people are often opposed to the concept of predestination, but they also believe in this concept of God has a wonderful plan for your life. Uh, oh yeah, yeah. which yeah. is predestination. Right. predestination. Congratulations <laughs> if you believe that God has a wonderful plan right. for your life or a right. plan for your life. <laughs> Congratulations, Congratulations, you believe in predestination. Yeah, there's something in the terminology in there. Predestination sounds very rigorous, very just every. I mean, it's a chessboard. Everything is there. Whereas <laughs> plan sounds a little, you know, we have financial plans. A lot of things don't go according to plan. Yeah. And so, yeah, you get that. Um, the best thing I've heard about election, uh, there's a young lady who uh, just really started feeling guilty that she was in Christ. And and it really just, just wore on her. And she went to... Uh, lady who was discipling her and said, I just feel, I feel awful. I, I don't, I, I don't know what to do. I, I'm in, I have all these, these hopes and, and I have peace in my heart and I feel terrible. And the answer to that is election. It's an explanatory principle is to answers. Why are you in Christ? And you're not in Christ because of your own effort, nor is it your fault. 
you know, you're in Christ because he's called you. It's on God. And and that's good because I've known some people who are this soft-hearted that they would go, you know, wow, I, I can't feel right about having some privilege other than other people. Well, look, it's not on you. You know, God is the one doing the calling. And I think that's very helpful because I do see that. I, I see that, you know, look, election is not something, though, that's mentioned like 300 times in the scripture. So no. we're, we're not meant to make this our only hill to die on. This is what we talk about, you know, 24-7. Uh, it's not, that's not the emphasis you see in the scriptures, but it's there. So, And I wanted to just maybe mention this. I don't know if this is a part of your agenda here, but um, the importance of remembering God, yes, God um, is purposeful. He's going to accomplish his will. It says in Ephesians 1, um, but we have to be careful not to connect God, associate God with evil, right? Mm-hmm. So it's important here that God saves sinners, right? He saves sinners, and God does not enforce unbelief in people. And the idea that, that idea, well, if you're not elected, then therefore God must have given them unbelief, right? Or God, God made them sin, or God gave them sin. God does not give sin. Right. God does not enforce sin on us. He doesn't put sin in our hearts. Right. We are responsible for the sin in our lives. For those who do not put their trust in Christ, who hear the gospel every Sunday or whatever, who don't respond to the gospel, they are held accountable by God and they are judged by God for not believing in the gospel. God did not make them unbelievers. They're unbelievers in their sinful nature. And I wanted to make sure mm-hmm. we distinguish the two because there are some out there who, who kind of like associate, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. God basically gave them unbelief and God is glorified. No, hold on. Like we're not we're associating God with evil and sin and rebellion yeah. against him. That is wrong. Mm-hmm. God elects people to salvation who do not deserve salvation. Christ saved people for salvation that didn't deserve salvation, that right. deserved hell. And thank God that he saved us through his son Jesus. But he does not give unbelief and he doesn't give um, uh, this idea of, of rebellion against God that comes through our sinful nature. Yeah, and to think about it in uh, a more basic level, I mean, we agree that all men are sinful. That's like a basic yeah. Sunday school answer that's there. That right. That's in our own hearts that we, we've all rebelled against God and we all merit death because of our rebellion against God. But the gracious thing is, is that God would save any of us. Right. That's and that's exactly the right. beauty of what election really yeah. is, is right. that we none of us deserve salvation, and yet God chose and saved some, yeah. right. which is just like Noah and the ark. We don't look at the Noah and the ark story and say how awful God is because of that story. We say how gracious God is because he chose Noah and his family, uh, who we see after the Noah's ark story. They're just as depraved as anybody else. That's right. Uh, and and they, they live, live a wacky life after that. That's right. Uh, let me uh, change out kind of the tape here.